Tech Talk. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour, we'll hear how tech can help tackle the cargo hijackings that are costing businesses billions every year. Club Force will explain how their platform solution takes the hassle out of the admin at your local club. Plus, Lizzie Beecham will join me to talk through the calibre of entries for this year's APNI Lions Den startup competition. As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Instagram at jesskellynt. But first... Last month, Gardaí confirmed they were investigating after a gang hijacked an articulated truck in Slane full of COVID tests while the driver was resting in a layby. According to the FBI, cargo theft is estimated to cost trucking companies and retailers between 15 and $30 billion a year. This all adds to the supply chain disruptions that have fueled inflation over the last while. Overhaul is an Irish-American company with bases in Dundalk and Austin, Texas, which looks to help mitigate the risks associated with cargo logistics. David Bro is the COO and co-founder and he joins me now. Uh, David, you're very welcome to the show. Can you just start by telling us a little bit about the company? Yeah, so Overhaul are um, a risk management platform for supply chain. So if you think about it, if you're the manufacturer of a, a high-value uh, commodity like a gaming console or a laptop or a, a smartphone, that's, that's a very valuable piece of equipment. And you want to keep eyes on that piece of equipment from, you know, end-to-end end within your supply chain. So that's all the way into the manufacturing, through the supply chain, across multiple modes of transportation, all the way to the to the shop is is what we do, and we put all of that um, information in one single place for the shipper, as we call them, which is the person who owns that that cargo, and then we apply, you know, a series of kind of business rules on top of that to basically make sure that that's uh, moving along safe and secure as per plan. And if something goes out of plan, we try and get it back into compliance and safe again. And we're doing that in real time across hundreds of thousands of shipments um, on a daily basis. I find the world of logistics really interesting because there are so many moving parts, literally and figuratively, some of which nobody can control. So that could be the weather, a war, an act of terror, the list goes on. But can you just outline some of the more common scenarios that occur? Because as I mentioned there, it does cost businesses money, but it also disrupts the entire supply chain, which leads to unhappy customers. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I think supply chain just some people love it so much because of all that change and complexity. Because it's never no plan ever, you know, survives first contact, as they say in the military. So, you know, the, there's lots of logisticians who kind of plan how to get something from, let's say, Asia into the European market. There is a plan, but that never works out. There's either congestion at a port there's a lack of capacity within a particular mode of transport there's individual actors like a driver or whatever who, who change their mind and change the routing and um, that can then expose that shipment to risk um, in our business particularly we're thinking of criminals um, a lot of the time are after the kind of product that we're we're covering 
So if if a driver of a truck parks somewhere that they're not supposed to, that's not safe, and now you're exposing that to risk, and that is that's what the criminal is looking for, and they see that opportunity, and there's can be m- multiple millions of dollars uh, or euros in that in that shipment, so they're they're paying attention and looking for those opportunities. So, um, and that complexity really helps give them the opportunity. What way does the risk assessment work and is it based on the value of the commodity or the frequency of the trips and the routes taken and so on? Yeah, well, so there's, we we, we do a lot of uh, pulling in information around intelligence of where the risk occurs and the risk does move around. Um, it can be as simple as, you know, sometimes the weather can actually increase risk, which is kind of not immediately intuitive. So, but what happens if you think about a truck stop that has a lot of trucks, which are all made out of metal, if it's dark and it's raining, that creates a huge amount of noise, which means uh, the criminals can now actually break in um, using power tools and nobody would hear uh, and they won't see because it's dark. So that would be, we would have algorithms which would say, okay, now I have a shipment that's it's stopped, it's dark and it's, it's, it's raining. I'm on heightened alert. So if, there's a, if we sense something like light or movement within that shipment, we will now this, the, we will now detect that as a potential crime in action and we will we will respond to it immediately. So there's lots of different factors that can come in depending on the different scenarios, but what you're typically looking for is something that wasn't in the plan and we will have, if it's in the right particular location, that will be those two things together. I mean, we, we'll, we'll trigger an alert. What goes on behind the scenes? And, you know, does AI do a lot of the heavy lifting here in terms of predictions, assessments and recommendations? Yeah, so the great question. So the how it works, say, the last these last five years, you're you're trying to pull as much telemetry into your system as possible, right? So that's, you know, and supply chain is getting more and more data, data enabled down to the package level or the truck or the trailer. Every driver has a phone, you know, every, every ship and the rail car is is now getting connected so you've got all of that in transit information and you're pulling that into one place we're bringing it into a technology software platform there's just too much going on for any humans to really do it but so what we let this the machine do is sift through that and look for patterns that are problematic like that scenario i kind of explained where you know it's that's an event it's a stop or it's a deviation in route that we didn't wasn't part of the plan the system will then look for people to respond maybe it sends a text message to the driver are you okay is everything all right if it doesn't get a response that it likes it'll then kick that up and eventually at the tip of the pyramid is we we would have a 24 7 capability where a human would get involved look at that situation and investigate and try and figure out what's going on and do they need to escalate it yet further again to law enforcement? So that's how we've been doing it. And we're all the time using kind of the more traditional methods of, you know, automation to try and make that as scalable as possible. Mm-hmm. What the AI is, does and what particularly the new technologies do is it really just enhances that process hugely. Because at that top of the pyramid, as I described, that, that human who's kind of getting in there, now we've been able to build um, AI tools that are able to sift through all that complexity, that very unique situation, which is always unique. And now we have a tool, we call it Risk GPT, 
that the humans that can actually interact with and say, what should I do now? What's happening here? What's the next step? Rather than having that kind of investigative mode, which we had maybe prior times, we now have a tool that sits alongside the human. And again, we've seen tremendous results of, you know, better decision-making, less errors, faster decision-making, faster response times, which in our game is, is what it's all about. It's been making that, the next good decision to make that window of opportunity for the criminal, if it's in progress, small as possible, or if it's if it's a risk scenario, we're trying to just close that out and get it moving or get it away from that risk so nothing actually bad happens. So AI has really helped us on that front. And is it all focused on risk or you know, does your solution look to offer efficiencies in terms of getting whatever product it is from A to B in a faster method? Well, well, for for us, we're certain we're very much a risk. But you know, the, uh, what they say is kind of cargo at rest is at risk. So we are constantly trying to keep it moving because when it's moving, it's safe, and mm-hmm. when it's moving, that's efficiency. So a lot of our customers know that. Yeah, we're we're trying to manage risk, but when by managing risk, we're also managing the optimization of our supply chain as well. So they kind of come hand in hand. What's needed in terms of hardware? Is it, you know, old school GPS, but in a new fancy device? Or does connectivity have a large plate, a large part to play in all this as well? Yeah, so that's that's a huge area in and of itself, IoT. And, you know, we've been in this space for, for many years and, and seen a scenario where maybe 10, 15 years ago, maybe 10%, 15% of trucks would have had telematic systems, you know, uh, which give us signal. So now that's really right up there. It's probably 60, 70%. And every truck that's now rolling off the production line is fully enabled and fully connected. So that's tremendous, tremendously useful for us because now everything's kind of lit up. But in some, some scenarios um, and for some product types, we also use an IoT device, a tracking device that will be either embedded in the cargo or at the door or part of the seal. It all depends on different scenarios. And that's giving us signal that is helping us, you know, run the program. So we, we tend to try and get as much data as possible because it's better to have more sources of data than one that could fail, obviously. We know that between Brexit, COVID, the war in Ukraine and so on, there's been a whole host of uncertainty in the world at large. Have you seen more businesses turning to services like yourselves to navigate the scenarios that could not only put their cargo at risk, but also their drivers too? You know, absolutely. And um, I mean, the whole, I think uh, COVID, you know, the world discovered supply chain when COVID happened and when things go wrong. And um, and I think every business kind of lost control and visibility to what was happening in the supply chain. And then there was the there was the people who were tremendous at it, like Amazon, who just kind of went from strength to strength because they just really had a good grip on their supply chain. So over the last five years, we've seen a huge amount of interest in supply chain, visibility, telemetry, you know, management, using technologies to really get to grips with something that will never be, it'll never not be complex and never be not ever changing, right? So technology is the way to get, get control of this situation. So most companies now have, you know, uh, a really, you know, forward-leaning supply chain digitization strategy, uh, whereas maybe 10, 15 years ago, that would have been just seen as like almost an afterthought. You really need to be on top of your supply chain so that the customer experience, like people like me and you, you know, we expect when we order a thing, 
um, we expect to know exactly nearly to the day, if not the hour, when that arrives and, and, and be on top of it. You know, so that's your experience that all the brand owners are now having to kind of have the supply chain such that it gives you that kind of experience. So it, it really has given us a, a tremendous boost in the last number of years. Yeah, and I suppose one thing that I sometimes think about it is, obviously it's great to have the technological solutions in place that can help mitigate risks. But there is an element in all of this that, you know, nobody can control, and that's the human element. So be that the drivers or the bad actors and so on. Does overhaul get involved in terms of the vetting of the drivers and when it comes to driver safety, or is it, just more geared towards the the planning of the route and so on. Yeah, well, it's, it's different markets have different uh, approaches. So the the vetting of drivers is definitely uh, part of our services in, in probably more higher risk areas like Mexico and Brazil. That will be part of the service, um, and you would have a, like a again a technology that scans the driver license of the drivers. They present themselves and make sure that they're not on a on a on a blacklist somewhere. It's not quite as as prevalent in Europe, um, partly due to risk levels, but also due to kind of you know data compliance and that kind of thing. Um, but it is something; it is it can be a risk. And what happens with in a lot of these other markets, the the criminal element never changes. So, mm. you know, sometimes we're trying to help the the good actor, the driver who might be exposing the truck to risk through just you know unwittingly, um. But there's also cases where the driver's complicit in the whole enterprise. But even so, what happens is um, the criminals are constantly looking at whatever industry does, they respond. And it's like an arms race, you know, because this is a very valuable business to them. You know, there's a lot of it's a it's relatively low risk, but high return, mm. uh, given the kind of money that can be in it. If you think about it, a, a 40 foot container full of um, gaming consoles, there's a lot of, a lot of value in that. And do we have scenarios where uh, cargo is still disappearing off the face of the earth? Like, does that still happen? Oh, yeah. No, there's, there's still successful um, um, cargo hijackings all the time in many different countries. Um, as I said, the, the, these guys are professional. Um, we've seen situations where, you know, we've got a pretty high recovery rate because of the kind of things we have in, but we would know within the industry, you know, um, where there could there will be mul- multiple millions of dollars in in a single hit, um, and that is not too uncommon. Uh, it doesn't happen every every month or week in places like Europe or the US, but in high risk markets, you're talking, you know, quite significant level of activity and frequency. You mentioned there that the criminal gangs are growing in sophistication as this technology is developing as well. Are we in a place now that, you know, the risks are going to continue to grow as sophistication of tools like yours grows? Or will we get to a stage where the majority of these instances can be caught, stopped or, you know, prevented entirely? Yeah, well, it, it, there's a thing we kind of call it, the phrase we use, which is like, it's kind of like a balloon squeeze. So when we harden and tighten the supply chain, which is our core mission, the demand for, for the product or the doesn't go away you know that generally pushes that that activity somewhere else mm. so it, it might be towards the warehouse or it might be towards the retail outlet itself uh, or it might be it might switch from we saw this in the pharmaceutical industry you got really really kind of aggressive as an industry around securing the supply chains maybe 10 years ago 
you know, they, they kind of back off that product type and then they move to some a different product. So it might be they go to high value electronics or into apparel or or alcohol or food even. And, and you know, it doesn't have to be high value. It just has to be highly liquid. They have to be able to turn that into cash. Uh, so it might be they might do be more active at lower cargo values um, in a different product line. Uh, but they still, they ultimately will hit their kind of hit their target, so to speak. So it, it typically when you harden one part, it moves to another. They, ch- they change up their methodologies and we're constantly trying to keep up. So that's why we're all the time adding different elements to what it is we're doing and how it, we, it is we're doing it to stay effective. Yeah, it is a fascinating area and I really do appreciate your time. Uh, David Bro of Overhaul, thanks so much for joining us here on News Talk. Great, Jess, thanks a million. Now, before we go any further, uh, if you follow me on Instagram, you may be aware that a number of years ago, we set out to try and collect GAA jerseys for a young girl named Roisin. Uh, Roisin was diagnosed with leukaemia, age three, and she's gone through various treatments over the years. Uh, But very sadly, her family found out recently that there were no more treatment options to try. Roisin's going to be 12 on May 31st. And rather than, I suppose, dwell or linger on her prognosis, uh, she has a request for you all. Take a listen to this. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Do you remember me? I'm Roisin. And you collected all the GAA jerseys for me. So I had an idea. Yeah, My birthday is coming up. And I will be 12. I would love to get some birthday cards, especially handmade cards. I love unicorns, rainbows, fairies, everything Disney, and funny jokes. Oh, you want to hear a joke? (laughs) What do you call a dinosaur fart? A blast from the past! (laughs) (laughs) so if you have the time can you make me some cards please bye (laughs) yeah that is Roisin and as she said she would love if you would send her a birthday card handmade ideally I know she's a big fan of unicorns uh, so if you can factor that in at all Uh, but she loves getting posts and it really will bring a smile to her little face so if that's something you would like to do please send it to me, Jess Kelly, Marconi House, Diggs Lane, Dublin 2. Pop it in the post as soon as you can and I'm going to make sure that every single one of them gets to her before her birthday on May 31st. So again, handmade card sent to me to Marconi House, Diggs Lane, Dublin 2. That would be amazing. And uh, yeah, fingers crossed we get as many as humanly possible to bring down to Roisin uh, for her 12th birthday. We'll be right back. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Now, before the break, we were chatting to Overhaul about assessing the risk for logistic companies. But there's another type of logistics that can be very tricky to manage, and that is within your local sports club. If you've ever managed a kids team or your local squad, you'll know there's a myriad of things to consider. Well, Club Force is an Irish solution that the founder... Built out of necessity, he saw the gap in the market because he wanted something like this for himself. 
As I said, it's called Club Force. Uh, Rich Stock is the commercial director of the company and he joins me now. Rich, you're very welcome to the show. Can you just start by telling us a little bit about Club Force? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so Club Force is um, a software platform designed to help um, sports associations and organisations from clubs through to national and international federations um, just manage their sports, really. Um, it makes administration easier. We try and um, help them with their fundraising and their communications and all the aspects of uh, online tools that really can help sport. And I know back in the day, my dad used to manage different football clubs and it used to be an A4 piece of paper, a biro and then the landline phone. And that's how stuff got organised. Obviously, things have grown from a technological point of view, from an expectation point of view and then other considerations like GDPR and all that kind of stuff. Can you just talk us through a scenario for, you know, say a local club and then maybe building out of some of the big organisations that would use the platform? Yeah, I think for a local club now, the the expectations both from their members and the responsibilities as an organisation collecting data are are a big challenge for what is essentially people doing this in their spare time as a volunteer. Um, So, you know, that that paper and clipboard now turns into an online form um, and we can create a whole CRM database behind that to, to help clubs manage that data and understand it. But importantly as well, rather than them tracking it as kind of the first step of digitalization was on say a spreadsheet or something like that, which is hard to keep tabs on. We, we put kind of the, the security layer on top of it. And um, it's something that we, we at Club Force think is really, really important because we're, we're acting on behalf of these clubs and they still uh, legally have a lot of responsibilities through GDPR. Um, so that's why we've gone through things like our um, ISO 27001 accreditation recently and certification to make sure that, you know, Clubs can be really confident that a platform like ours is is looking after their data and their members' data properly. Mm. One of the big things anybody involved in sports will know that there is a lot of admin, organisation and communication involved. Uh, Again, just paint the scenarios of where the platform comes into its own and sort of alleviates some of the pressures that can exist when you are involved in the back end of a sports club. Yeah, so we touched on this kind of membership side of things um, already, but then the next step off the back of that is once you've collected all that information, it's communicating with with members. Um, so Clubforce has a uh, a mobile app uh, that allows uh, clubs to create different groups, a bit like WhatsApp, but without the um, ability for people to see each other's phone numbers as you get a kind of a WhatsApp group. Um, it allows a coach to go in there and say, who's coming to training on, on, on this Saturday or uh, or create a recurrent event um, and track that attendance, track uh, availability. Um, And then it goes beyond there as well into that kind of wider support base for for the club. So obviously you've got your members and your participants who are pretty engaged, but um, a key, key thing for uh, sports clubs these days, especially in the current financial environment, is is trying to raise more fundraising. Um, And so we've had pretty much the market-leading tool uh, for club lottos for, for years now. Um, and so we're kind of always refreshing and building that and trying to create ways where clubs can engage into that wider supporter community and uh, and tap in and bring in funds in that way as well. Yeah, and that is, it's such a huge part of organisations, um, clubs. And again, a lot of work goes into it and a lot of admin goes into the organising, the processing of funds, that, you know, whether it is a transparency report to showcase that everything that came in went out in the right place and all the rest. 
I suppose if you were to sit down with a spreadsheet, the benefits of all these different aspects, it makes pure sense to have it in one centralised hub. Is the is the thinking that this is the platform that coaches and organisers would need or are there other uh, platforms or pieces of software that work alongside it that are needed? No, it's very much designed as a single single platform, and, and you're, you're exactly right that that reporting is uh, so so critical to to the success of the platform uh, when it's implemented in a club. I think you know it's amazing the levels of fundraising clubs are doing. Um, I was absolutely blown away. I only moved across from the UK uh, last year. And to see the size of some of these club lottos that particularly the, the GAA clubs are, are running is incredible. I mean, some of them are, are managing to raise six figures annually. So it's it's really important. There's a really strong kind of audit trail behind that so that when treasurers are preparing reports, it's easy for them to produce it and share that and give confidence to the rest of the committee and their club. In terms of the platform itself, one of the big things that I come across uh whether it's in the world of sport or in agriculture or in any walk of business, it's the ensuring that a platform is easy to use and that you don't need a PhD to be able to navigate it and get the most out of it. How much time and energy and focus has gone into designing a platform that is pick up and play to a certain extent? Yeah, it's absolutely critical. You're right. Because if you think about club volunteers, they can go through from like young sort of 16 18 year olds right through to people in in well in their their, their later years let's say um and so it's vital that our platform is usable for for both of them uh both of those groups of people and we've we've invested a huge amount into this new next gen uh platform we we've been around uh producing systems like this since 2009 so we've learned a huge amount by doing that and this this has given us an opportunity to start with a complete kind of theme theme, uh, canvas in terms of what what the user experience looks like and build all that experience in alongside the latest ideas around uh, usability and user experience. And so what are the key differences then? If somebody has been on the platform for a while and now the next gen is here, what what would be the key things that they would notice as being new and beneficial to that overall user experience? Um, I think for a club volunteer, um, the this the system is is just a lot a lot cleaner and a lot easier to use. It's um, it, it's very easy to navigate and find the, the 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 various tools that you need. We kind of regroup them into more logical uh, groupings that fit with um, the particular tasks that a, a club would need to do. And then for a member themselves, again, it's just about like taking the platform and making it much cleaner and easier. So. Mm-hmm. Um, a member log, whether they're logging in to buy a membership or purchasing a lotto ticket, that's all all connected now into a single integrated checkout. So in the past, you might be making a purchase um, over here with membership and in a different area to, for the lotto, whereas now that's all all connected. So that's easier for both the member, but also it's really good for the club because it means that the clubs can um, connect those two two activities and try and encourage people to get involved in any fundraising they're doing at the point where they're signing up for membership as well. In terms of your clients at so the clubs, can they select the level of service available to them? Like, are there tiers of offering or once you're on the portal, you're on the portal? Yeah, I mean, we, we work with quite a wide wide range of uh, uh, of different clients and, and probably the, the, for the majority of clubs, that, that service uh, and the, the platform is very similar. There's a few clients that are now starting to step into more advanced uh, functionality. Um, so there's a certain number of clubs there, but we're also now working with uh, leagues and governing bodies 
Um, we, we just actually even now working with uh, CONCACAF, who are the, the International uh, Federation for the North America and Caribbean football. And that, that level is all about data. And they're all looking for insights into that, that data. And so we're building um, an insights layer that allows them to dip into this, this treasure trove, really, of data um, that exists around participants in the sport to help plan and, and work out what, what the best strategy to grow their sport is. And is it something that uh, your clients will sign up for on an annual basis or can you do it on a seasonal basis? Because... I'm thinking just because my niece and my nephew were talking about it over the weekend about summer camps, for example. So I'm sure this will be really beneficial to people who are running summer camps or Easter camps or whatever it may be. So can you sign up on a seasonal basis or does it have to be an annual subscription? Um, so the vast majority of our clubs would sign up on an annual basis, but we we definitely work with a few on the basis of just getting the Easter camps and summer camps uh, on board. We, we just had probably the biggest Easter ever. Um, on the Club Force platform for Easter camps, which has been absolutely fantastic to see, because uh, I think it's kind of the sports world is getting getting back to normal a little bit in terms of participation post COVID, um, and so yeah, we're, we're expecting to see the same this summer with loads and loads of camps on the platform and loads of opportunities for people to take part in sport, which is just great. Mm. And tell me a little bit about Club Force as an organisation. You've mentioned that you've been around since, was it 2009, I think you said, which is obviously a long time now. Um, how have you grown? How many people work for the business and where are you based? So, yeah, the, the business has developed quite a lot. When, when we first started out, um, it began with um, our founder was running uh, a, a sports club himself and found that it was so frustrating that he could, didn't have a tool. So he went out and, and he built it. And he, he, the first thing he built was the Lotto piece, and we gradually added more to the platform. So it's gone from kind of Lotto uh, to to adding on the membership side. We've now got a website builder, the mobile app, all the communications tools, and obviously this insights layer. So it's really, really grown. The, the team is now about 40, um, and we're based over in, in Galway. Um, yeah, just on, on, on the dock there. Oh, fab part of the country. Uh, the website builder thing is really interesting to me as well, because I think... Uh, a number of years ago, and it sounds weird saying it, but a number of years ago, I think a lot of clubs just lived on the likes of Facebook. You know, they had a Facebook page and that's where stuff went out. But as we spoke about a while ago, between GDPR, between different demographics being involved in clubs and all the rest, it seems to be a bit more disparate than it once was. Um, so are you seeing an increase in clubs and organisations looking to have a part of the internet that's just theirs and they control and no user names or anything like that are necessarily required from the from their customers point of view yeah i, I think i think it's becoming more and more important to have that kind of central hub for, mm -hmm. for a club um and and i think it's increasingly a challenge as as the the various social networks fiddle with their algorithms and and change it so more and more are becoming a bit of a pay-to-play space um, so for a volunteer club, you know, they're not not interested in really paying for posts to be boosted and, and all these sorts of things. So a website is a really good way to do it. But then on the flip side of that, that's something that um, in the past they would have had to maintain um, themselves. And, you know, it quite often would be some some young member who'd get dragged into kind of building a website and then they might go off to uni or uh, or move away from the area. And then the website would just go out of date. Um, so, so what we try to do there is provide 
made a, a really easy, simple website builder. So literally anybody could create a website in, in a matter of minutes on it. And they can add news, add their uh, various pages of information that they need for their members and, and pr provide that central hub in just a really easy way that they don't need to worry about the kind of hosting and the maintenance of, of the code. Yeah, it does sound like the dream for people, particularly for organizations that rely so much on volunteers. Anything that can streamline without giving up control of the product, I think it is so important. Uh, the website is clubforce.com if you want more information. Uh, Rich, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us here on News Talk. Thanks very much. Delighted to be with you. Thanks. That was Rich Stock of Club Force. Now, when we come back here on News Talk, Lizzie Beecham from the African Professional Network of Ireland will join me to talk about the Lions Den startup competition. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. As ever, if you want to get in touch, you can drop me an email, techtalk at newstalk.com. Uh, on Tuesday's Pat Kenny Show, I'll have the new Google Pixel 7a in studio. This is a phone that Google unveiled on Wednesday, I want to say, of this week. Uh, and I've had it for around a week or so. I have been so impressed by it. I loved the Pixel 7 and the Pixel 7 Pro when they came out. So this is the little sister of that range. It's in and around the 500 euro mark. Uh, and I've been testing the battery, the camera, the screen, the whole kit and caboodle. Uh, so you can hear that full review on Tuesday's Pat Kenny show. So that's Tuesday. And then on Thursday, Thursday, the African Professional Network of Ireland is hosting the final of its Lion's Den startup competition. I have been following this online and I am very excited to see who walks away the winner. But I'm delighted to say that Lizzie Beecham is with me now from APNI. Uh, Lizzie, we spoke to you on the show a while back about the work that you guys do, some of the meetups that you host, the networking events and so on. Um, just remind us a little bit about your offering and then also specifically what the Lion's Den startup is all about. Yeah, great. Great to be back on the show, Jess. Um, so basically, um, the African Professional Network of Ireland, APNI, is a volunteer group. And as you said, we are running networking events, but also looking to kind of connect uh, Afro-Irish and African diaspora professionals who are living in Ireland are working here in lots of different ways. So one group that we really wanted to focus on is supporting entrepreneurs, be they people who recently started businesses or been nurturing the, these aspirations for a while. So our entrepreneurship competition is called Lion's Den. It's a business pitch style competition, uh, kind of taking some inspiration from the Dragon's Den style so it really is a place for businesses that have been founded or co-founded by Afro-Irish or African professionals living in Ireland to get mentorship, access to some really great prizes and supports if they win, and also just kind of, uh, I suppose, develop and, and hone their pitching skills throughout the competition. Yeah, and this is something that you know, is very familiar to anybody in the tech scene. These types of pitching competitions are so beneficial because you build in confidence, you make connections, and then you may pick up little nuggets from the other competitors who are in the room. So it is a brilliant idea. Uh, talk me through the nature of the submissions. From what I could see on your Instagram, it was sort of a mixed bag, but tech was well represented there. 
Yeah, I suppose this year, this year's competition, I think in total, we had 28 businesses submit themselves. And as you hinted to, there was a real mix. There was some people that had maybe started catering businesses, but also a lot of businesses that had a tech focus, but then also touched on other areas, be they payments management and fintech. So our kind of three finalists that have reached the final that will happen um, on the 18th of May in Dublin City Council's Woodkey venue. Um, Preamble, which is a data visualization company that helps create really interesting and impactful uh, data visualizations and designs focusing particularly on African data. So covering everything from investment to tourism to geopolitics. Uh, so it's a really kind of rich resource for people who are maybe making decisions or producing reports that would touch on uh, African countries or African nations. Uh, the second business is a company called Billout. They are a payment solution. So kind of helping people keep track of their subscriptions and payments and bundling them together in a really user-friendly interface and an app. So I suppose we've all kind of fallen victim to signing up for a free trial for something and maybe not cancelling in time and then incurring a fee that you didn't want to to continue a service you weren't interested in anymore. So that's a really great, I suppose, consumer tool to help manage your finances. And again, solving a real business need and a real kind of problem for consumers. And then third is POC, which is a tool for B2B, like software as a service, SaaS companies, helping their sales teams to kind of collate and better manage resources on clients in a kind of place that isn't you know dispersed with some information living in an excel sheet and some information living in slides and kind of a unified place that they can get and gather information to kind of make their sales funnels run a lot smoother yeah they're all brilliant businesses and great ideas i do wonder if it weren't for something like Lions Den, you know, would these companies get the acknowledgement and the support and the celebration that seems to be happening from yourselves? Is that some? Is that still a problem? You know, that we don't have more diversity in the in air quotes mainstream competitions. Yeah, completely. I think we're the only kind of group in the country that's doing something like this. That's trying to, I suppose, create a, an environment for startups. Um, particularly focusing on the African community. As, as we know, in the past, I don't know, 30 years, we've really seen a huge and fantastic diversity coming into Irish society. So we want to really try and empower and nurture um, Afro-Irish people or African people who might happen to be living and working here or recently moved to kind of have that leg up. Because I suppose, like everyone, you know, we as we know, so many Irish people living abroad, the minute you move from your home country, your network completely changes and it shrinks. So you need, I suppose, groups like this where you can find, um, you know, maybe common, common people that maybe share some of your cultural experiences to help you kind of reestablish and build a bigger network outside of, you know, your your job or outside of the community that you're living in to kind of help you, as you said, bring your business a bit forward, elevate it, publicize it. Sometimes the hardest work can be letting people know the interesting idea that you have or the interesting business plan that you've worked on and you want to elevate it to the next stage. Mm. And uh, you mentioned that you've got your three finalists now. So what's next? So um, it, I suppose it's been a good journey so far in the sense that they've had to submit a pitch deck. It's been reviewed by our judges and this will all culminate next Thursday 
um, in our event, which is on the 18th. And that will be held um, in partnership with Dublin City Council, as I said. And basically, they'll do an in-person pitch. I think the tickets are actually all sold out, but we'll be sharing so much on our social for people to follow. But they'll just be presenting again, Q&A from the judges, and then there'll be an overall winner announced. And then after that, they're going to receive a cash prize, but also access to free co-working space with Dog Patch Labs excuse me, and also access to the local enterprise offices, start your own business program. So these are really tangible supports um, in addition to the workshops that we ran with them previously. And I suppose, as, as you can alluded to in one of your earlier questions, just the networking at the event itself. So after all the kind of um, announcement of the final winner, we're going to have a really lovely evening. We've uh, got catering from a, a West African uh, style business, Lamy's Kitchen, that do great chalaf. And I suppose it's really kind of creating the environment that's fun and allows people to network because I suppose during the pandemic, so much of that stuff was like, stunted and limited by what mm -hmm. we could do but now we're really in a place where like people love to get together and talk and meet other people and just kind of have that in-person moment to kind of you know celebrate your business and celebrate how great these businesses are. You mentioned the final uh, is taking place on Thursday and you're working with Dublin City Council how important are those different partnerships when it comes to hosting these events to ensure that they're not more, not credible, but that you have that sort of backing and that you can take things on to the next level. Totally. So, yeah, we're a really lean volunteer organisation. So, for example, with Dublin City Council, you know, we don't access, we don't have access to a space ourselves or, you know, we, in terms of renting, we would rather, you know, partner with the likes of Dublin City Council and see if they can help us by providing a venue. And that gives us the space <clears throat> excuse me to get together as a group and have this really great in-person event in a beautiful location in the city center so it is again I suppose kind of taking a kind of a different perspective on it as a community group you have to be really smart and think about well we have the time we have the interest we have the passion can we reach out to different civic partners like Dublin City Council or corporate partners you'll see in our on our socials we've been really excited this year to kind of onboard some different corporate partners so for example one of them is Grant Thornton and a few weeks ago we did a workshop with the Lions Den all the businesses that had submitted um, pitches and interest in it competition were invited to their offices and they had a really fantastic workshop with a number of the Grand Point and the staff that just looked at different aspects of their business from ESG to kind of tax and how to I suppose begin to structure those as a small startup or you know scaling up mm -hmm. and I think it's it's when you're a community organization you you know the need to stay there you know the people you want to empower or support so you just have to I suppose try and identify the pathways to access um help and engagement from because you know there's so many businesses and civic organizations that want to help so whatever your particular passion is maybe it's empowering people with neurodiversity or different backgrounds to kind of meet and be a collective we want to be able to be that bridge to kind of help uh kind of create events and also meaningful programs like this that really empower and uplift entrepreneurs well it is a brilliant event and as Lizzie said the final is taking place on Thursday hopefully we will have the winner on the show next week or the week after we will definitely keep in touch uh, but for now Lizzie Beecham thank you so much for joining us here on News Talk that's brilliant thanks so much Jess 
Yeah, that was Lizzie Beecham of APNI. Uh, they do fantastic work. If you've got an Instagram account, give them a follow and you'll see the progress of the different finalists and indeed the winner as hopefully they go from strength to strength. Now, before we go, I want to bring you another interview from the MasterCard Showcase. I was there last week at their Leopardstown headquarters and I got to meet a number of the executives who talked me through the vision, I suppose, for the future of payments but also bringing consumers along because there's no point in having these fantastic payment solutions and then not having every part of society being able to engage. And this was the nature of my discussion with Kelly Devine, who's the Division President of UK and Ireland. So if you like, if you think about it, we are the technology that sits between the bank of a consumer who gives you a card or a bit of plastic to make your payment with and the bank of the retailer where you want to spend your money. We help join those two banks together and basically help to check that you are who you say you are, um, pass the messages that enables your bank to say whether you've got enough funds or not. We can run fraud checks. We guarantee everyone gets their money at the end of the day. But with a sort of bit in the middle, if you like, that helps to make a payment possible. Mm-hmm. And we know that there's been a huge amount of innovation in this space over the last, like I've been a tech journalist for 14 years now. So over the 14 years alone, there's been a huge amount of change. And I think the pandemic, you know, shifted things up a gear as well with more and more outlets now. You know, there are signs in coffee shops right around Dublin saying, please pay by card rather than cash. Has that shift offered opportunities or has it presented as pressure to MasterCard to deliver and facilitate the needs and wants of different types of customer? I think it's it's. It, mostly it's opportunity because I think it's a chance to to serve people in a way that they want to be served, if you like. So I look after the UK and Ireland, and if I think about the UK, for example, where we also do cash at cash machines, so we're responsible for both sides, if you like. Mm-hmm. And people will always choose the way that they want to pay or the way that they want to get paid. And we... we we don't get to decide that for them, they get to decide that. So our job is to make sure that whatever they choose to do, we're providing something that helps them do it in a way that is safe and secure and it's that they understand the experience and the experience is consistent. So for us, the pandemic, you know, in some ways it shifted behaviour, it shifted people slightly more online. In some cases, there were outlets that decided to accept card payments that hadn't done previously. So that's great for us because we can continue to enable that choice. But clearly, you've also still got people who want to use cash. So how do we help to to um, be thoughtful in choices that we make that don't make it more difficult for people to make that choice either? And alongside the innovation in the Uh, financial sector that's going on and has been going on for quite a while there's also the rise of fraud uh, phishing smishing all the other ishings that are out there and that doesn't help those who might be a bit wary about embracing digital payments to take a step forward how much of a seesaw is it you know in terms of embracing innovation but also not going too fast that people get scared and then run away it's interesting, isn't it? As you say, we talk about innovative new ways of making a payment, but at the same time, every time you make a normal payment, your bank's saying, are you sure? <laughs> Do you know the person? So it is a balance, and I, I think there's a couple of answers to that. One is about trusted brands. So a brand like MasterCard, where you know what you're going to get, it, there are consumer protections built into the product so that if something does go wrong, God forbid, you have that protection built in. So you have to create trust, and you have to do that by delivering the right thing for a consumer when something does go wrong. Mm-hmm. So that, that's kind of the first piece of it, if you like. I think the second piece of it is when we do design um, 
new products is how you design things like security in right from the beginning you don't build the product and then come in afterwards and layer it on but things like privacy by design security by design you're baking that right in from the start to make sure that i mean fraud is a bit like we call it squeezing a balloon the trouble is once you stop it somewhere else it pop you know it, it will stop it in one place it pops up somewhere else but it is that it's just continuing to make it more and more difficult for these things to happen so that over time, you know, we, we, we push it out of the ecosystem altogether. Mm. So is there an education piece needed to be done or further education needed to be done to inform the consumer about the benefits of things like 2FA and the other, not barriers, but the other boundaries that are put in place to try and protect them and their money? There's, a, there's education, absolutely. We have to help people understand why we do the things that we do. We also have to make them better. Mm. So, you know, I, I'm with you that putting in putting in a code from a text isn't always the best experience. So how can we use other things, such as biometrics, for instance, to make that easier, to sort of take out the... You're constantly trying to find that balance between ease and convenience, but just the right amount of friction so that you do weed out the, the, the fraud mm. um, so yeah it's, but I think it's education but we can also continue to iterate to make the experiences better while still providing the right level of security mm. you mentioned about being you know a trusted brand and at the top I referenced everybody knows the logo and all that kind of stuff when we have different types of e-commerce sites and different social media platforms facilitating transactions online it's almost too easy to spend your money now. Uh, and, and I wonder in terms of the partners that MasterCard would have or the clients or the customers, I don't know what the exact terminology is. How important is it that you know action is taken if something goes awry on one of the partner platforms or one of the customer platforms? So we're very, so, so our business is, is exactly as you just described it. We are only the sum of all of the people that we work with. You know, if, if, if you're moving transactions between places, unless people work with you, you're, you're nothing. So the trust in our franchise isn't just in our bit of the puzzle. It has to be in all of the people that we connect with as well. So you're exactly right. That trust piece isn't just us. It's all the people that we work with. And we have a whole ton of rules. We have a very thick rule book. Um, but why do we have that? Because we have sort of standards, if you like, that we expect our partners to meet. And that's important to maintain that trust and integrity of the franchise. So we have the rules. We work with our partners to make sure that they're being followed. We do audits to kind of check all of that stuff. And it's, you know, it's like the two-factor authentication bit. It's not necessarily the most exciting, but it's, but it's what you need to be able to create the trust. Mm-hmm. That was Kelly Devine, Division President of UK and Ireland at Mastercard. And that's it from me this week. If you missed any of the show, you can listen back in full on the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. I'll be back with Shane and Kira on Monday's News Talk Breakfast. But in the meantime, have a great weekend.